Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 314 Creating Living Ritual. We're joined again by author and tantric practitioner David Chapman to continue our discussion on the challenges facing the reinvention of Buddhist Tantra. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. So, David, I was wondering if we could talk a bit about uh, some of the challenges of developing a Western Tantra. I mean, you just sort of talked about the historical challenges, but I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, what some of the current challenges are um, if we were to pick this project back up. Because you you mentioned in our last conversation, you mentioned in your writing that we're sort of entering from your point of view, a post-consensus era, you know, a period where um, there isn't this broad consensus about what Buddhism is and what it should be. You know, there's very much a splintering, and I'm sure this has a lot to do with the internet and information technologies. And so if we were to pick back up this project of reinventing Tantra, and by we, I I don't mean me, but I just mean generally the kind of royal we, what are some of the challenges? And and, and one I had in mind, and maybe to start with, is ritual. Because this is, in my experience, one of the biggest things that comes up when I talk to people about Buddhism in general, and, and certainly Tantra uh, in particular, I think is, is an area that people have a lot of um, kind of questions about. So I was wondering if you could talk about uh, ritual, because you make the assertion in one of your posts on reinventing Tantra that, that a modern Tantra could be ritual-free, um, but that that probably isn't a very good idea. And I wanted to see, because this is something that I've really changed my mind about in the last several years, what are the redeeming aspects of ritual and what might modern ritual look and feel like? And how do we deal with this kind of general reactivity toward anything that looks like a ritual that, that seems to come up so often for people? Well, uh, let's start with the reasons that we all hate ritual. Uh, if you say ritual, the first word that comes to mind is likely to be empty, empty ritual. Mm. Um, mostly our experience of ritual is that it's meaningless. It's boring. It's stupid. It's something that we've been forced to sit through, even though we're not enjoying it. And it probably expresses values that we're not really in agreement with. Um, And often it, usually I would say, it seems like the people involved um, don't really believe in what they're doing either. Even the leaders of the ritual seem like they're just going through the motions and um, the only purpose of this thing is somehow to reinforce some kind of institutional values of continuity and power. So that's exactly what ritual should not be. It's a dead ritual. It's um, it's a zombie ritual. We, we ought to put a, a bullet in the head of that. Mm. Um, what we want and, and what is possible is uh, exactly the opposite. If, if you think about uh, you know, inverting everything I just said, you get pretty directly to, to, to what ritual can be, which is uh, emotionally exciting, not boring, 
intellectually fascinating, not stupid, intensely meaningful, not empty. Um, you know, in fact, uh, intense meaning is what ritual is all about. It's about concentrating and directing meaning, and it inspires. Uh, it produces ecstatic states of consciousness. Um, it provides purpose, um, which uh, drives commitment towards action. A ritual, when it's working correctly, is all about connection. It's connecting all of the, the participants in the ritual with each other. It's connecting all the participants with uh, the sacredness of the world and with all the other beings in the world. Um, in connecting the participants, it creates communities. It um, ends alienation. Uh, this is, um, I talked about the atomization of, of meaning, of culture, of society, of the self at the mm -hmm. beginning. Yeah. And ritual is an enormously powerful tool for overcoming that atomization uh, in each of those aspects. Um, it, uh, a, a, a successful ritual is an experience of, of wonderment, of openness combined with passion. Um, it brings this intense, broader view. And, uh, you know, it, it can be and it should be a complete blast. Mm. Um, so the, unfortunately, Buddhist rituals definitely including most tantric buddhist rituals are nothing like that they are dead zombie rituals and one of the major obstacles to uh producing new buddhist rituals that would function as excitingly powerfully as i just described is that ritual depends very heavily on symbolism symbolism is culturally specific because it's culturally specific ritual specific rituals don't have a long shelf life history there's been constant innovation in ritual um, even during periods when buddhist doctrine was very conservative and um you know you, you mustn't change the word of the buddha leaders felt empowered to uh, develop new rituals because that's that's just a cultural expression and, and that's it's legitimate to to innovate there okay that's um, can i stop you there because that, yeah. that was something that i'd never heard before where 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 did you learn that like how did you stumble upon that is that just through sort of reading the sort of buddhist history is that looking back i'm curious if people that want to kind of learn more about the history of ritual and, and the sort of innovation there like where, where, where should they look? Um, I can't recommend any sort of brief introduction, unfortunately. Um, yes, it comes from reading the, the history of, of Buddhist Tantra in Tibet and back into India. And what you find is that um, every, at most hundred years, there's major changes um, because the social situation, the cultural situation is different, um, new forms are needed. Okay. 
Okay. Now, now that brings up a kind of follow-up question for me because I see this definitely reflected in in how practices are changing um, in all sorts of areas. I mean, technology might be one of the most obvious ones, um, and business because there's such a strong incentive to sort of uh, keep innovating; otherwise, you kind of die. Um, but you know, it seems like we're in a situation where things aren't changing uh, drastically every hundred years; they're changing drastically every few years. So, what does that mean for you know creating meaningful, uh, enlivening, um, like the kind of rituals that you're describing? Like, wouldn't we also probably have to have a method for innovating on those things kind of very quickly? Oh, well, that's a really interesting question. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is I feel that modern Buddhism has actually uh, been stagnant or, or static since about 1990. Um, and then, uh, you know, it, it kind of got stuck. I think in the last five years, maybe 10 years, there's been um, the beginnings of a new opening for innovation. So that's really exciting. And obviously the work you're doing uh, has has potentiated that. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's hard to know the, the um, in terms of, of developing new ritual forms or in general new presentations of tantra that reflect up to the minute cultural symbolism hmm. there's a big question about who can do that mm. uh, i don't feel i can um and then you know who else wants to and can i don't know uh, i i sort of feel like it ideally should be and perhaps could be a group effort um i think Innovation innovators need peers. Uh, when I, you know, was a scientist and engineer, having a peer group to bounce ideas off of, uh, who can tell you when you've got it wrong and suggest ideas, collaborate. That's hugely important. And I, I, I think there's um, the lack of peer communication and support for Buddhist teachers and leaders is something that's a structural problem in. Uh, contemporary Western Buddhism. I'd love to see that addressed. Mm, okay. Okay. Interesting. So it sounds like in some sense, you, you would see this as a kind of uh, co-participatory or co-designed effort, like that a group of peers um, could come together and sort of uh, basically come up with different ideas for, for how we might employ ritual. And then, you know, I, I guess another um, maybe difference I'm, I, I assume would be the role that people who are participating in those rituals, even if they're not designing them directly, would play in that process. Because that's one of the things that seems really clearly to have changed um, across the board is the, the role in which um, those that are participating in the things created for them um, there, there's much less of a line between the designers and the people who are using things. User center designed. Right, yeah. right. I mean, everyone's the marketer now, you know, for everything um, on Facebook, you know, and, and and there's some aspect of that which is also quite bizarre because it seems to, in some sense, be uh, a continuation of some sort of uh, um, power trip, you know, to 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 con to continue being able to maintain some sort of central authority over things. 
But on the other hand, it also seems to really blur the lines of that authority. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of throw that um, thought fragment at you and, and see if, if you have any response. Yes, uh, absolutely. I think um, a successful ritual now has to be um, radically participatory. Mm. And, uh, you know, in Tibet, I don't know what the situation is so much in other countries that had Buddhist Tantra. In Tibet, basically, you know, there's a Lama sitting up at the front who waved things around and chanted mumbo jumbo, and everybody else kind of sat there watching. And that was kind of the extent of it. And that's also the, you know, traditional Christian model. And that's not workable um, now. Mm. That's like the sage on the stage model. <laughs> I hadn't heard that term. Yes, that's right. Um, my background in ritual comes mainly from before I was a Buddhist. Um, I was uh, a, a neo-pagan. And there's um, a lot of... Um, experience and I you know technology you might say for ritual design there mm. that I think could be drawn on in th thinking about how new Buddhist rituals could be constructed and th those rituals are very much participatory uh, for the most part could could you give um, an example of what a participatory ritual um, looks like because that's something I have I'm not super familiar with yeah, well, uh, you know, ritual in in general brings together typically a lot of different art forms, um, which can include, uh, for example, singing, dancing, costume, um, and so in a participatory ritual, uh, you uh, those everybody involved may sing. Everybody involved may dance. Um, everybody involved may wear uh, a, a suitable symbolic outfit, which they may have constructed themselves. So there's uh, an element of at least assembling or actually stitching your own clothes to participate. Um, and those, um, you know, the experience of, of singing in a group that's very simple, but it can be very powerful. There's a, a real energetic quality to that. And I think people, uh, you know, the idea is very off-putting for many people because they feel they can't sing. And I certainly, my voice is not great. I can't sing. But um, if you have a, a simple tune with words that are you can learn in a couple of minutes, most people find that they're willing to join in quietly at first. And then they get over their inhibitions and they sing along and everything's loud enough that you don't feel like your voice is offending anyone. And, uh, you know, the combination of really loud music is important, really loud music. Um, I think, you know, we have technology for really loud music in the West, which uh, <laughs> surpasses anything that was available in Asia. I would like to see, uh, you know, they did their best um, with really big drums and, you know, the Tibetan longhorns, which are about 10 feet long and they really are loud. Um, but electric music, electronic bass, uh, that that could be great. OK, so uh, we so could we could take it to another level. 
is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think Western Western artistic culture has big resources that could be brought to bear on Buddhist ritual if we didn't have the idea that you're supposed to do it the way that people did it in Asia. Yeah, which is such a powerful idea. And, and that was one of the other kind of points I wanted to address with you. Sort of my last question has to do with lineage, because even as I was speaking with a close friend uh, yesterday about the conversation we're going to have, and, and definitely uh, Rinzen, your partner, mentioned this as well as a good question to explore. There is this sense from people, I guess, maybe folks who are familiar with the tantric traditions or familiar with the Vajrayana approach that basically says, you know, transmission of lineage is extremely important. And there are certain things that you get from someone in a kind of direct experiential way that gets kind of like, uh, you know, it sort of supercharges your experience or your understanding or helps you kind of learn what's going on quicker. And that somehow it's really important that that be, uh, that that be intact. Um, and so I wondered, you know, mm -hmm. in this case, you know, if, if Tantra is being actively suppressed as you claim, you know, how in the hell um, can we deal with the issue of, of lineage and that being sort of an intact thing? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of strands we could explore there. That's a, a big question. Sure. One distinction is there's institutional lineage, which is sort of the official authorization by some group that you're okay. Um, I'm simply not interested in that. Um, I think it's best ignored. The second issue is personal transmission, which I think is absolutely enormously important. Uh, this gets at the awkward issue of the role of the teacher in Tantra, which is uncomfortable um, for lots of reasons. And well, that was the central issue for Westerner uh, Western suppression of Buddhist Tantra in um, America, Europe, I think. But uh, I, I think there's a possibility for the... There's a correlation here of, on one hand, the view that the, the traditional Asian model is sacrosanct and absolutely nothing in that can change for the teachers, the guru-disciple relationship. And I, I don't really think that's right. There's also, you know, some of increasingly radical views in the West reaching out to people who say, uh, we shouldn't have Buddhist teachers at all. Um, you know, uh, we can learn from books, we can learn from our peers. Any sort of Buddhist teacher is a danger and we shouldn't have them. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of room for middle ground. I think that much more... Um, there's there's a much more important role for in than other forms of Buddhism, and the the traditional explanations of that sound magic, and I don't think it's magic. Mm. Um, uh, and then just to, to contradict what I said, <laughs> uh, I think that there's a, a final sense of lineage, which is um, visionary lineage, uh, that. 
you find in practice that um, it's hard to say this without sounding woo, uh, but um, you have the support of the great heroes of the past. You have the support of uh, the deities, and the deities don't exist, but their support is hugely important. I'm not sure that any of those things answered your question. Uh, no, they they do they do in the sense of framing lineage in multiple dimensions. And um, could you say just a tad more about the deities' support, which don't exist? Uh, yeah. Well, there's the don't exist, and then there's the support. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have a essentially naturalistic scientific worldview, uh, so um, I don't believe in gods. Uh, the the so-called deities are not exactly gods. Um, I think their you know precise ontological status of you know how they do and don't exist is a, a subtle, open, interesting question for philosophers, but it's not really relevant. Um, I think the the way to approach them as a practitioner is that um, you work with them as visualized entities and they take on some sort of life of their own. And, uh, you know, that's something you just accept and you work with it. And um, there's a, there can be a huge power in that. Mm, okay. Is, is this anything akin to, the notion of archetypes or um, kind of universal symbology or, or some, something along those lines. I'm not trying to kind of fit what you're saying into, into another schema, but just wondering if there's any relationship there. Um, yeah, that idea goes back to Carl Jung's own introduction to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where he drew an analogy between mm. uh, the tantric deities and archetypes. Um, I think it's it's valuable in that it understands them as not being external, solidly existing entities. I think it's misleading in that the archetypes are uh, supposedly universal across all people and all cultures, and the the yidams the so-called deities, deity is a bad translation. Most of them actually aren't deities. A lot of them are historical people who, you know, were flesh and blood. They lived and died. They've got biographies. We know quite a lot about, you know, where they lived and what they did. Uh, so those are definitely not gods. Um, and the, so, the, so they're extremely specific. There's nothing archetypical about them. Um, they're they're heroes, but they're not archetypal heroes. And and the the ten, the ones that are gods are very strange in a lot of cases, and you know not definitely anything you get in any other culture. Okay, interesting, cool. No, thanks for uh, for going into that, and um, and thank you too for yeah exploring some of the sort of challenges are there are there any other main challenges you see that you want to just kind of touch on I, I know we don't have time to go into all of them but um maybe we can follow up in a few years and see uh, see how things are going yeah uh well i think the 
the major question is one of uh, whether there's receptivity to this kind of idea, how it would fit into contemporary uh, society and culture in a way that uh, is acceptable and understandable. And I, I think there's real open questions there that are, are very unclear. Okay, so um, I think that's a fine place to leave it because I think you're right. I mean, at least listening to you, um, it seems like there are some things that are quite unclear. And yet it also sounds like there isn't a kind of opening of possibility in what yes. you're describing. And that to me is exciting. Great. It, it's certainly exciting to me. I, I do think that um, there are real possibilities here. Yeah. And, you know, j just a final kind of reflection, and this is something, you know, we, we, we spoke about a bit privately. You know, I think there is this constant tension, at least in my experience, of having this conversation of what a relevant, alive Buddhist or many Buddhist forms might look like, you know, today, um, in the sense that I think the people asking those questions obviously care deeply about what they've learned from their own experience. And at the same time, there's this feeling, I think, you know, that both of us could relate to, of really feeling like there's a certain inadequacy to the forms we've learned and really wanting to like feel the, the deep, relevant potential of it made real. And yet there's also, I think, this further complication, which is, who am I to try to like do that? I mean, I just barely scratched the surface of this stuff. You know, the, the further I go, the more I realize how deep, you know, how deep the pool is. So I think there is this kind of, I don't know if you call it an innovator's dilemma of some sort, but there is this, I think, very challenging place to sit in where, you know, knowing that to innovate also means to really mess things up and to really like get things wrong and maybe even to hurt or harm people. Um, and, yes. and I certainly see that playing out in this, you know, in this kind of exploration, you know, because there's on the one hand, this recognition of the potential and on the other hand, this sort of hesitancy to step into that, you know, and, and I certainly feel the same way. And I, um, you know, for what it's worth, I think there are a lot of people exploring on these fringes. And, you know, I think there is a lot of solace in the, that recognition, you know, the, the recognition that there are other folks doing this and that there are people interested in this stuff. I think that's uh, really hits the nail on the head for me personal hesitations about taking this further. There's just real um, sense of, whoa, uh, you know, I, I don't feel up to the task and yet it's something that's really important. And so somebody may have to do it. And uh, I, maybe that's where I think the peer group is, is really important. Yes. And, and, you know, like you said in our, in your last conversation with Hokai, I think there is a distinction between coming together and, and forming a kind of broad consensus and coming together and sort of hashing things out and, and, you know, um, talking about things and really putting things to, you know, to the test and experimenting and leaving room open for disagreement and, you know, even um, complete uh, and utter, you know, <laughs> uh, dismissal of each other's <laughs> ideas. Yeah, and I think you know you've been Buddhist Geeks organization, and you personally have 
affecting that in a way that has been very helpful for uh, contemporary Buddhism. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your um, explorations on this topic, and I hope it leads to some good stuff. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.